Monaco and Culture is brought to you in association with the all-electric 2024 Cadillac Lyric. Magnificence electrified. The Cadillac Lyric delivers a sporty, responsive and agile drive that makes every mile a milestone. This groundbreaking Ultium EV battery platform fundamentally changes how electric vehicles are engineered, delivering charging and power storage technologies that fit seamlessly into far-reaching journeys and daily commutes. The Lyric is a vehicle that balances the sensual and the technical in masterful harmony, where rhythm, form and colour unite. From emergency braking to intelligent alerts, parking assistance to vehicle monitoring, the Cadillac Smart System suite of safety and driver assistant features, standard on the Lyric, means you'll drive with added confidence. While innovations like available supercruise driver assistance technology and Google built-in set a new standard for technical prowess. Take the next step. Head to Cadillac.com now to configure your car. The all-electric 2024 Cadillac Lyric. Magnificence Electrified. Hello and welcome to Monocle on Culture. I'm Robert Bounds. Now, the days are longer and the summer light might be creeping in, but those aren't good enough excuses for Monocle and Culture to tear ourselves away from the small screen. Why should we? There is a veritable feast of programming that is worth staying inside for, and today we'll look at some of that programming. I'm joined here in the studio by the TV critic and broadcaster Scott Bryan, and dialing in from San Francisco is the Washington Post's TV critic Ingu Kang. Uh, They have each picked three shows, something that's been out for a while, and we're going to have a look at a fresh, a show that's on right now and one to look at in the future. We've got crime, cooking and comedy, among many other non-alliterative offerings. Plenty there for us to get our teeth into on today's show. So welcome both to the programme. Scott, you're in front of me. Nice to have you in the studio. Lovely to be in the same studio as somebody else. Isn't it nice? In your fine turquoise shirt, it's thick turquoise listeners. And it's very And hot. it's quite a warm studio. <laughs> oh, no. But the fragrant Scott Bryan is not scared by such, no. such uh, problems. I'll just faint later. Okay. Ingo Kang is on the line from San Francisco. It's lovely to have you with us, Ingo. Excited to have you. We can't see you because we're kind of keeping this kind of fresh radio style. But it's great to hear your voice across the airwaves. How are you doing? I'm good. Um, I'm perfectly dressed because I am smarter than Scott. Sorry. She's dressed for Zoom. <laughs> I didn't come on to this just to have my fashion choices criticised. But no. lo and behold... He looks great. Come on, let's do this. Scott, we're going to start with you. Let's change the subject. <laughs> um, you're going to talk, tell us about Julia, but why don't we have a clip to get our listeners in the mood first? I've had a recurring thought that I'd like to propose to you. An educational cooking show hosted by myself. Feels flimsy to me. This is public television, for God's sake. Shouldn't we go with someone with a more camera-friendly look and a less distinctive sound? You were onto something so big. I'm just sorry that my colleagues don't have the vision to see it yet. Where are these gentlemen? One of the advantages of looking like me is that you learn at a young age how not to take no for an answer. <laughs> ah, that was a little bit of Julia. Scott Bryan's first choice. Well, we're in a beautiful kind of cosy universe here, but what universe are we in, Scott? I mean, this is all about Julia Child, of course, (laughs) the chef that is renowned, who came to TV at the time when TV was really starting to be rolled out, at that time when TV was seen to be a bit of a fad. 
and she was famous for. Should we say flash in the pan? Keep the cooking. <laughs> trying to think of many sort of. Okay. Yes, yes, yes. I can see where you're coming from. <laughs> she was sort of known for French cooking, but she was also there as a who really revolutionised cooking on TV at a time、mm. when the whole concept of a cooking show was really not thought of. And also, when she started her programming, it was completely unedited. So, if she had a blunder when she was cooking, it would just go out onto the TV, and that would be just the way that that it is as the final product. Which was part of the charm of those early shows. Really, very much so. I mean, she was authentic and had approachability, but she's also very complex as an individual. And I think when she's been depicted in other shows and other films, she's sometimes come across as a bit of a caricature. She's deeply layered, and this new drama just called Julia. Starring Sarah Lancashire, who's just oh, I mean, let's get onto her in a second. But、yeah. like, this is a drama that just charts her her career. You've got David Hyde Pierce, aka Niles Crane, playing Julia's husband Paul, and it starts with her just sort of realizing there's this special secret sauce. Yet again, another food reference about <laughs> TV, knowing that there is something special about her. And Sarah Lancashire, who I think many listeners will recognise、um, from Happy Valley, which is the Sally Wainwright drama that is also coming back later this year, and it's one that I'm very excited for. She manages to capture Julia's mannerisms perfectly, but also I think really gives her so much heart. And it's a fascinating character study, but it's also oh my word, it's like food heaven. <laughs> TV about TV is kind of. People in TV, such as yourself,、yeah. will obviously love this. Yeah, viewers will obviously get the, some of the meta references of it in the early days of TV, the mess ups, as, as you said, and stuff. But what about the TV show about food? I mean, this is dangerous stuff. I could never get it through an entire episode of Bake Off without having to run to the sweet shop. <laughs> Would they have any pudding in the house? Yeah, I'd have to run run to the corner shop. It is a bit like Master Chef when you look at the TV. And you see the food that's on there, and then you look at your meal. And even if you've really tried <laughs> and you've made a lovely meal, you're a bit like, "All right." And then with Julia, like for the first twenty minutes, there's just like the most delightful music and just a montage of endless arrays of food. I mean, this is right up my street. I mean, I love Julia Child. I guess even my generation came to Julia Child through YouTube, I suppose, and actually characterizations of her. So you you mentioned. This is a kind of like、uh, you know, this is a coconut shy, I suppose, for Sarah Lancashire. What's her take on Julia Child? You said that she's a more complex character than the caricature which she's sometimes made out to be. Yeah. What does Sarah bring to this?、Role? I think Sarah is just one of our most phenomenal actors of our generation because she never feels like she's acting. It's like she just has such heart, and she pays attention to every single detail and every scene. She's famously does not do many interviews. I've read previous interviews with her about previous roles she's taken, and she researches so intrinsically and so detailed into every single part, and tries to imagine either if she's depicting somebody real what they would be like, but also down to every part of their personality that she's kind of got a person, she's kind of got an acting approach for. And I think if you see her in Happy Valley, when you're watching her in Happy Valley. I feel as if I am seeing a tired, exhausted police detective.、Mm. I never ever feel that I'm seeing her acting in it. It took me a little while because she looks quite different as this as Julia. It took me a little while to realise it was actually watching Sarah Lancashire. Well, that's good. Oh, hundred percent. That's、yeah. the thing. Can I say one thing about Julia? Actually,、oh, yeah, 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 yeah. I think one of the things that's really great about the show is you never see a TV show about a fifty-year-old woman at the start of her career. That is, I think, a lot of like where that sort of charm of Julia comes from. 
because here is a woman who has known for a very long time that she knows exactly what she is capable of, but she was sort of never given the opportunity to actually try to do anything with her talents. I think seeing this sort of blossoming in middle age has been really wonderful. And that is Julia. It's available now on Now TV and Sky Sky Q. Sky Q. I mean, just it's all of the random assortment of letters these days. They keep changing their names every 10 minutes. <laughs> that was first out on the 31st of March 2022. So it is maturing, beginning to mature like a fine televisual wine. I can't quite hear her tummy rumbling from this far away. But um, we're heading to San Francisco now to speak to Ingu Kang. Ingu, sadly, we're not going to play a clip of my brilliant friend because we're trying to figure out exactly what percentage of our audience are fluent in not just Italian, but Neapolitan Italian. So we're just going to cut to you, Ingu, and have you describe it for where are we in my brilliant friend this is really beautiful italian language drama based on elena ferrante's books it starts with the protagonist when they're about eight years old and by the end of the third season which is a season that just ended they are about age 32 ish and the wonderful sweep of the show really takes you and like within this like a very craggy very sweet but very competitive friendship between these two girls as they transition into womanhood. And Julia and my brilliant friend actually, I think, just make really great compliments to one another. What about this? I mean, this is the doing that same thing, starting a female experience, I suppose, and doing it about in such a different backdrop. The sometimes mean, sometimes lean streets of Naples. What about that? What about the city itself as a character in this drama? Or are we solely front and centre with the girls? I think the city is a really big, important part of this. And so is the development of post-war Italy. The show begins in 1950s Italy. And basically, these are girls who are sort of like born into shell shock, sort of. Like, the city that they are growing up in has been completely destroyed by war. There are basically no resources for a kind of caring beyond brute survivalism. What's really interesting about the show is sort of the accidental sociological experiment that gets set into motion at the beginning of the show. There is the first smartest girl in the class and the second smartest girl in the class. And the first smartest girl in the class does not get the family support to go to school beyond elementary school. While the second smartest girl in class basically gets to go all the way to college. And I think that you sort of come into this scenario with the assumption that, of course, the girl who has the family support, who has the dedication to make it all the way to college and sort of become this minor minor celebrity in our town because she has a college degree, is going to become the really big honcho. But actually, the first smartest girl is still the first smartest girl. And so she is going to try to out with her friend and out-succeed her friend at every turn possible, just in these like not so prestigious aspects of life, aka maybe the mob is involved somewhere. Surely not in Naples. <laughs> what could possibly go wrong? And just finally on this, I mean, you know, we should mention that these are adaptations, as some listeners will obviously know, of, of these beloved series of Elena Ferrante novels. Um, how close, how far, Ingu, do you know they are from the source material of this series? I don't actually know. But I will say that what has been really great about this most recent season is that essentially... It takes the girls from age 22 to about 32 
And while Naples is prospering again, even though there is always this undercurrent of political and mafia violence, at the same time, the women's movement is happening. And I think what's sort of very relatable in this like very callow, but sort of like trying to make your way around the world way between these two frenemies is that you sort of like see each other judge each other for their lifestyle decisions and basically this sort of idea of like are you oh correct feminist are you making a decision that's like right for you and I feel like that is unfortunately a really common dynamic in female friendships maybe in friendships in general. We should say that my brilliant friend this is based on the third book in Ferrante's series Those Who Leave and Those Who Stay and the show, as described by Ingu Kang, is on HBO and it's been on since the 28th of February and continues apace. Um, Ingu, thank you very much. We're going to turn to Scott again. He's going to be talking about Gaslit, new on Stars Play. We'll talk about that name possibly later as well. We have opinions. We have a clip of Gaslit. I've had some disturbing news, sir. Operation Watergate. Uh, security guards busted wide open. The next 48 hours is going to be crucial. I don't know how to put this. Uh, we're wondering about your wife. Y'all going to just stand around or you want to ask me some questions? You worked for Martha Mitchell's husband? Yeah. She's completely insane. Loud mouth. She's a truth teller. Unreliable. I love her. You don't Oof. I'm excited. I wanted to hear the whole song, to be honest. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so Gaslit, it's a very contemporary word. Actually, it's not a very contemporary word. Well, it depends. It's a, a word, I think, that has its derivation somewhere in the 1930s. But yes. anyway, but it's a hoary old subject. What is it, Scott? Uh, you know, it looks at the Watergate scandal and looking at the downfall of, of Nixon. And this is, I think, based... If, if This is, like, for me, the perfect reflection of where we are in the peak TV era where you're getting the A-listers, Julia Roberts and Sean Penn, as you do, just in a film. Plus, it's based on a podcast. It's based on Slow Burn, mm-hmm. which is you know, one of the most factual-based podcasts that there are. And it retails history from perspective of people that you don't know about. Very similar to American Crime Story, which is a Ryan Murphy series that's incredibly well done. So it's always these glossy, quite authentic people who haven't really had their fair praise or recognition that they have deserved or have were involved in embroiled in a scandal that ended up having big consequences that they really didn't foresee. It's like the trend at the moment. So where are we with this? I mean, we've got Julie Roberts, Sean Penn, and for British viewers, I suppose, Dan Stevens, big name as well. We know we're in in that universe, the universe that's been covered many times, you know, All the President's Men, you know, brilliant films and as well, all the rest of it. What fresh light, if any, does this cast on the scandal? So it looks at Martha Mitchell, who's the wife of the Attorney General, John Mitchell. It also looks from the perspective of the White House counsel, John Dean. And I think it's trying to give the intimate side of what it was like to be within the White House when all of this was happening. The perspective, I think, so far has been done so, and rightly, has always been from the journalist perspective of the journalist who broke the Watergate scandal and tried to cause the unravelling of Nixon. I think this looks a bit more like the people who were involved on the other side, either implicated in it or were bystanders that had no idea about what was happening. Okay, so that was Gaslit, and that is on Stars or Stars Play. It started on the 24th of April. I think we also might be getting a second opinion from Ingu Kang. Um, (laughs) Just briefly, Ingu, on Gaslit. I know 
from my notes that you have an opinion. <laughs> share it, share I it. I did now. not think that this was a very good show, actually. No. The, I mean, you see Sean Penn and like 50 pounds of prosthetics. He is unrecognizable, <laughs> but like... That's just what he looks like now, Ingo. It's fine. I mean, he looks basically like a blend of Sean Penn and Alfred Hitchcock, wow. really, in here. But for me, really, the thing is that I think that there is something about the way that it presents this, like, extremely loudmouth, conservative activist woman who is the wife of an attorney general, which is a very high role over here, as a sort of, like, weird, like, quasi-feminist hero. And I just thought... You know, the show is so dishonest about what she actually believes that it just sort of like renders her into this like campy figure who shows up on TV and says some things sometimes like she's like a real housewife. I did some research while writing my own review, which was quite negative. And I'm looking forward to reading it as well. (laughs) (laughs) And she said of like the Cambodian theater of the Vietnam War that it was, quote, 100 percent wonderful. That is not the kind of thing that you really get from this show because the show wants to do this like quasi feminist gloss on her just to sort of give her this like vindication. Okay, we'll let that brew on. We won't, don't swap email addresses and continue this. <laughs> We're staying with you, Ingu, though, because you're going to tell us about We Own This City. Should we have a clip first? Get our listeners in the mood. I'm Nicole Steele with the Department of Justice. In a city of 620,000, BPD cops reported over 300,000 pedestrian stops in the last five years. You guys have locked up and beat on so many people, we can't get 12 in a box who are willing to trust what a cop says. Could there ever be a moment where a police officer performed their job in such a manner that you would agree with a finding that he should be fired for abusive behavior or brutality? Sir. Has it ever happened? That was an exciting, pacey bit of We Own This City. Ingu, where are we? We're in familiar territory to many listeners, but just what city and just what police force? We are in Baltimore, which is about an hour's drive outside of D.C. Baltimore is, of course, the setting of The Wire, and We Own This City is by two of that TV show's biggest creative minds, David Simon and George Pelicanos. We Own the City is actually about a 2017 police scandal. So this is real life, right? This is based on true events. Yes. It's based on a really big scandal involving, I believe, eight elite police squad members. And basically, they just like went around the city terrorizing people. Uh, if you are getting flashbacks to The Shield, uh, there is a lot of The Shield in this. Uh, the Shield, of course, being about an elite LAPD police squad that went around terrorizing people. We Own the City stars John Bernthal and Josh Charles, both of them doing very different things than you usually see them do. But really, while it's telling the story of this 2017 scandal, which is, of course, a very recent, it's also trying to give some sort of context for what policing has been like in Baltimore post Freddie Gray, who was one of the black men whose names were constantly invoked during the Black Lives Matter movement. Freddie Gray died in the back of a police vehicle in 2015. He was 25 years old. It's still not entirely clear under what circumstances he died. And basically, this is sort of about how the police have done this unofficial work stop order. And so because the police don't want to police, uh, it's sort of about the difficulty in trying to get 
the police and the city to sort of line up and figure out how to have a police department that works when the city doesn't trust the police and the police don't trust the city. So we're kind of deep here into into kind of a real life news story, I suppose, in We Own This City, Ingu. Is truth stranger than fiction? I mean, The Wire was famous for its intricate sort of plot lines and the depth and sort of naughtiness of the reality of that program. This is based on real stuff, though. What's more believable or disbelievable? We Own This City or some of the kind of high dudgeon of, of The Wire, I wonder? This is very much a kind of spiritual sequel to The Wire. I believe I read an interview recently with Simon and Pelicanos, and they were saying something along the lines of like, we thought, you know, a lot of people said The Wire was too unbelievable, like the stuff in there was too extreme. And now that they look upon The Wire about 15 years later, and they compare it to sort of the news stories that they're reading, they're saying, you know, we didn't actually go far enough with The Wire in depicting police brutality. So this is like sort of their way of making up for it. And just finally on We Own This City, it's uh, it's a good point you raise. I mean, you know, inevitably about, you know, the policing of, of particularly black men in America. Do you feel that this show has necessarily kind of different tone or that, that this subject matter, especially because it is based on real events, has to be more subtly handled rather than being pure drama? Or do you think actually making it pure drama makes some of the messages, for want of a better word, hit home that much harder, Ingu? One thing to know about the elite squad that goes around terrorizing pe- these people is that the victims are pretty much all black, but the police officers themselves are a combination of white and black officers. And what the show wants to get at is that there is this sort of like civic necrosis that is engendering the rot in the police department and it sort of gets at, you know, it's a David Simon show. It's going to be bleak, right? <laughs> and so a lot of the show is about how police reform is basically impossible because our cities are also dysfunctional. And anytime you think you're going to get a reformer come in and do new things, I mean, you've seen The Wire probably, uh, it's not going to happen for 26 million reasons. And David Simon wants to tell you what those 26 million reasons are. (laughs) That's very well put. You do get the feeling he wants to tell you what the 26 million and first one is as well, right? Nonetheless, it sounds like good stuff and probably kind of sober um, and powerful viewing. It's We Own This City. It's on HBO Max. The first episode aired on the 25th of April this year. It continues. Scott, the ball has fallen into your court. This is going to be kind of probably a possibly, he says, future <laughs> classic. Mm. Let's get a clip of this big old boy. There are many ways to describe life on this planet. Some creatures could be called magnificent. Or monstrous. Perhaps misunderstood. But only a few creatures who roam this earth could be called all three. Oh, and you cut straight back to Robert Bound. I don't feel like the I feel like the elephant's in the room. Well, there we go. Maybe they're talking about you, Scott. Honestly not. So this is Prehistoric Planet, obviously narrated by Sir David Attenborough. Who else? I mean, 
God, you know, we're welling up slightly in the studio, just the sound of that. Where is he in this, his thousandth series, possibly? Yeah, I mean, this is an interesting premise because it's called Prehistoric Planet. It uses state-of-the-art technology and scientific research to bring the dinosaurs back to life for millions of years ago. They've spent a lot of money on this, but it does actually <laughs> look spectacular. And it yeah. tries to do what... And this is what I find fascinating. It's essentially what the BBC show Walking with Dinosaurs was... More than 20 years ago. That came out at the turn of the millennium. It was the first time that they had used computer animation with scientific research to try to show what it was like millions of years ago. Of course, there's been many an article written since saying, oh, this was out of date. Actually, T-Rexes have feathers or that thing hasn't got a neck, etc., etc., (laughs) etc. But it was, I think, the first time that essentially computer animation was used in a natural history way as a way of bringing the past to the present. And and this is essentially doing it again, but on a massive scale. Like Apple TV Plus has spent a considerable amount of money. They're doing it over five consecutive days as a big sort of TV style event because Apple TV Plus is trying to elbow its way in more into the streaming space. And the hype around this really kind of shows to me that it is Apple TV Plus's year. Because by having far fewer shows than their rivals, they tend to have shows that have immediate buzz compared to... You don't get lost in the mire of what what else there is on that platform. Yeah, they're very, you know, I think they choose really well. And of course, you can have expensive failures. And of course, on that one, there, there has been. But this is, I think, something that's got certainly a lot of hype. It's not out for a little while yet. There's no real previews available. But from the figures I've seen so so far, it suggests it will be something worth watching. I just love the fact <laughs> that it's essentially saving you a lot of hassle because normally when you are making a natural history film, you have to be up in the, the mountains for weeks in a box and minus 10 to cap- capture this sort of rare tiger or deep in the forest. Here, you could just, you know have a little day out filming and then just CGI it's everything It's the CGI, in. it's the working from home yeah. version of... We've done it, right, <laughs> filmed it, off our way home now. Yeah, yeah we'll just draw it in later. Um, and I mean, I guess the ultimate way to give a natural history programme CGI or otherwise gravitas is to have Attenborough's, maybe some of his learning, maybe some of his, his sort of wisdom, but certainly his voiceover, right? I mean, and that's the thing. It, he's got the voice that I think is one of the most distinctive in broadcasting ever. Mm. And it's also the fact that he is the only person, I think, in British TV or in TV history to have been on black and white TV, colour TV, widescreen TV. And to have run a channel, Stream- right? He ran BBC Two. Yeah, ran BBC Two, streaming TV. He's also done 3D TV. No one else has ever in the history of TV media has ever done all of these different media. No one, no one, no one, no one. So the fact that he's still doing it now is phenomenal. And of course, his his influence is, is phenomenal too. And now, I think he's now done a show for Netflix and he's done one for Apple TV Plus as well. It's yeah. a bit like Oprah, just going from one streaming service to another at will because no one's bigger. The limber Sir David Attenborough getting on in years, but jumping from one televisual rock to another in the fast-moving stream mm. of streaming. We can have that for free. <laughs> <laughs> that is called The Prehistoric Planet, and it is on Apple TV Plus from the 23rd of May 2022, and it's a one-week, as Scott says, sort of televisual feast. So get your teeth into that, like a T-Rex. Um, thank you very so much, did, Scott. Then. Yeah, okay. Back to Ingu, cringing possibly in San Francisco at our bombast and bluster here in the in the London studio. Should we play a clip, Ingu, of the kids in the hall reunion? 
Ah! Ah! Who are you people? Well, the curse is lifted and the kids are back. Guys, I knew we should have cryogenically frozen our bodies. Well, who's financing this time? The devil again? Well, sort of. Amazon. Are you crazy? Oh, all hands on deck. Do you know what Amazon wants from Kids in the Hall? Y yes, Don, a, a funny show, but one that is free of targets. <gasps> Topical topics. It's all a government conspiracy. Alarming edginess or unsettling settings. That is a bit of the Kids in the Hall reunion. And Inga Kang is going to tell us, without using the words wacky or knockabout, what that clip was all about. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if I've ever used the word knockabout. <laughs> okay, I think that is a bit of an Englishism. So you're safe. So tell us a little bit about this. I obviously did some research on this, but the kids in the hall was something that I wasn't familiar with off the top of my head. I had to do a bit of Googling. Other search engines are available, obviously, because this is kind of seems to be a very meta take on a kind of beloved classic. Wait, Scott, are you familiar with the kids in the hall? No, I'm really not. No, not at all. Oh, Wow. Okay, so this is a Canadian sketch show that ran in Canada from about 1989 to 1995. And then it ran ad nauseum via reruns in the US. And so it was a very formative show that I watched in middle school and high school. It's basically five troop members, I think the most famous of whom is Dave Foley, who started news radio. It's also Mark McKinney, who found some recent success on Superstore. Also Kevin McDonald, Bruce McCullough, Scott Thompson. It was a show that was produced by Lauren Michaels, who is also Canadian. And basically, it was sort of like the anti-SNL sketch show. There was like no pop culture references. It wasn't really topical. It was just weird people <laughs> being weird. It was very wholesome. I think, you know... There's so much of like nostalgia programming that I hate, but you know, when that nostalgia train comes for you and stops right at your door, there's no resistance getting on that train. And I think that's how I feel about this reunion between comedians who are now, you know, in their late 50s, early 60s. I'm very curious how they're going to sort of retool their sketch show for a 21st century sensibility, really. So this looks like a kind of very impressive sort of ensemble. You said it's not sort of topical, but was this a sort of North American phenomenon? Was it a purely Canadian phenomenon? Did you have to have a certain cable deal or something to get this when you were a kid, Ingu? How much has this got its teeth into kind of American culture? I think if you like comedy. I think basically you are probably familiar with The Kids in the Hall that it used to run on Comedy Central all the time. And so it was very easy to find. And I think th there is a part of it that made it sort of like kid friendly, but also it had a lot of satirical bite to it. And so it was also appreciated by adults. They made a movie, Brain Candy, in 1996, which was a spectacular failure. <laughs> and then also a miniseries in 2010. So this will be their first reunion in something like 12 years. A lot of their sketches really revolved around really surreal bits. There was a character named Cabbage Head. There was another one called the Chicken Lady. And so... I, I think my favorite one was just sort of like this guy who would go around with his like fingers pinched very close to his face. And then he would sort of look at people's heads through his first two fingers. 
and then close them and say, I'm pinching your head. It's a very goofy stuff. <laughs> but if you have watched We Own This City and you just need to like not feel complete despair about the world, this is what you want. I think listeners can roll their own joints and draw their own conclusions about the kids <laughs> in the hall reunion. We should say um, also that I've got my notes here. It's got cameos from the likes of Mark Hamill, Colin Mochrie, who listeners will know from Whose Line Is It Anyway? And people like Eddie Izzard and Fred Armisen, who can do no wrong. So it seems like a surreal but worthwhile watch and obviously very interesting how at least in the trailer it uh, takes the mickey out of being on Amazon Prime Video which is <laughs> it is on and that premieres on May the 13th 2022 beautifully described by Ingu Kang thanks both of you very much you. indeed I'm going to have square eyes by the middle of the summer if there's any justice <laughs> um, thanks very much indeed to Scott Bryan thank you Scott thank you and Ingu Kang thank you Ingu so happy to be here uh, and that is all we have time for today. Monocle on Culture is produced by Sophie Monaghan-Coombs and Seth Chung-Goo and Steph also edits the show. Our researcher this week was Sanson Mbogo and we'll be back at the same time next week. But until then from me, Robert Bounds, thank you very much for tuning in. 